Ivo Nieuwenhuis works as a professor of Dutch literature at Radboud University in the Netherlands. He's also a comedy critic for the national Dutch newspaper Trouw. He's currently writing about the politics of humor with a specific focus on humor's political implications in terms of gender, race, and class relations. We talked about these implications and the unresolved question of whether humor is inherently subversive or can just as often be conservative and regressive. He's published a bunch of articles on these subjects, but the main focus of our dialogue was this new issue of the European Journal of Cultural Studies that he co-edited with Dick Zeip, which contains some new approaches to the politics of comedy. The reason this new issue is so exciting is that it comes at a time when, as Neuenhaus explains, the post-political worldview that characterized the zenith of liberalism has been supplanted by a sort of hyperpolitics. The point of no return moment we now occupy where everything is inescapably political and a more diverse panoply of funny voices can be heard in comedy. And one of the things Evo points out in this conversation is that while there has always been humor, it's this almost trans-historical and universal thing, it's very difficult today to be humorless. In today's system of compulsive entrepreneurialism, where cultural capital is a question of social survival, the quote, saturation of every aspect of life with comedy has reached a unique stage. If comedy is everywhere, and if humor is an obligation, can we still be critical about it? Like when we're surrounded by forms of funny communication that are predicated on boundary pushing and offensiveness, do we have to look at it as brave or challenging? Or can we speak up and shut it down? This obviously opens onto the thorny situation we've crudely dubbed cancel culture in our culture, which we note is not just about cancellation of certain kinds of humor, but as often about the emergence of new comedic styles that do consciously criticize conventions and comedy. Fundamentally, Evo says comedy is still about power, but not in the assumed way that it's typically been thought about. Yes, comedy can challenge dominant power structures, but it can also, and often does, reinforce them. In fact, Evo suggests that both things can often happen in the same comedy special. Because as he points out, the forum itself is very persuasive, so we need to, as audiences and avowed appreciators of comedy, be critical about the aggressive side of humor, and the co-optation of its truth-telling power for pernicious purposes. Evo is sort of an expert in the history of humor scandals. In this interview, we talk about these moments as kind of flashpoints, controversies that emerge as a way of allowing us to assess changing cultural norms. Politicizing mockery, which claims that derisive stereotypes are somehow a form of inclusion, we look at the controversy surrounding Dave Chappelle's horribly transphobic and unfunny Netflix special, The Closer and talk briefly about the flashpoint of Joe Rogan being officially sponsored by Spotify, among other you know, key sites of struggle over what's acceptable in comedy and what constitutes overt hate speech. And beyond that, how the debate itself has been both accelerated by and attenuated by algorithmic media and platform capitalism, where corporations like Netflix and Spotify, ByteDance and Google, and an increasing number of other Silicon Valley behemoths make money from our debates. It's tough to know how to proceed in this context when we feel compelled to identify and confront the defensiveness of the old guard when it comes to comedy, knowing that our discourse has been captured by a binary model 
that encourages individuated clashes for cash. The point, in part, is just to be conscious of how we're ensnared and go from there. It's a pleasure to be talking to you about one of my favorite subjects, um, comedy, humor, um, you know, I, uh, you know, I didn't know necessarily where to begin with this, you know, set of questions about your, about your work, which I, I think is like pretty pathbreaking. You know, there's, there's a lot of work in comedy studies, but the more kind of critical and political stuff that I'm interested in, there seems to be a degree of like hesitancy, maybe, I don't know, to at least apply it to the question of stand-up comedy. And that seems to be, um, yeah, like a glaring sort of gap. And so, you know, like this essay that uh, you sent me, which is the introductory essay to this this new volume of the European Journal of Cultural Studies that I think will be coming out pretty soon, um, which you've titled, uh, it's a co-authored introduction, titled The Politics and Aesthetics of Humor in an Age of Comic Controversy. Um, you know, it really, you know, it really summed up a lot of uh, the reasons why I am personally invested in comedy and why I think people get kind of, um, you know, agitated about the politics of comedy. Um, but I wanted to kind of like ask you, first of all, about this, this kind of trajectory that you chart in that essay. Um, you write that, quote, in the post-political world of the 1990s and early 2000s, the idea that humor does not have serious political effects was more widespread in both humor scholarship and public debate. Um, you say this attitude can be seen reflected in the positive humor movement. Um, so, I mean, like, just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious what that positive humor movement means. And I guess, like, I'm just kind of jumping to the conclusion that it is about this kind of self-consciously fun, positive form of humor that isn't concerned necessarily with politics. Am I interpreting that right? Or did you want to historicize that at all? Well, yeah, certainly. And I think, first of all, I uh, I, I like to emphasize that uh, I, I, I agree that this is something relatively new, uh, this critical look at humor and, and comedy. But um, I'm certainly not the only one. And uh, I especially would like to uh, stress that um, uh, it is indeed a co-authored and also a co-edited volume uh, we are making uh, together with my uh, dear colleague and friend uh, Dick Seip. Uh, also based in the Netherlands, also working on a very interesting uh, dissertation actually on uh, uh, Dutch comedy and the politics of comedy and humor in, in, uh, in the Dutch context. Uh, and also I think there are some others uh, working in the same line of thinking and same line of research. Uh, uh, so, but, but, but I agree that uh, it is relatively scarce and there's also this other sides, which is also still quite dominant, um, uh, which you could also uh, uh, put under the header of the positive humor movement. Mm -hmm. So there's this very strong idea, I think, in public um, uh, opinion uh, in the media, but also among many humor scholars, actually, uh, at least traditionally, to, to think that humor is necessarily something positive. It needs to be positive. It cannot be something else than positive. Uh, why? Mm -hmm. I think this is my, I'm not a biologist, but I, I, or a psychologist, but I could, uh, would think that 
uh, uh, this has something to do with the fact that we associate humor with pleasure. Mm. So mm -hmm. we think something that I find pleasant, something that makes me laugh, that's something positive. So when we talk about humor, we talk about um, uh, what kind of beneficial things it can do in society, how it makes you a better person, how it's healthy, um, but also in the domain of politics uh, and society, uh, how humor is critical, how it is against the powers that be, things like that. And so this is a very strong sentiment uh, in, uh, in, well, in society, in the public opinion, but also among many scholars. And so what is sometimes termed the uh, critical humor studies or critical uh, comedy studies goes against that by not necessarily saying that it's only uh, a bad thing, certainly not, but by... Uh, uh, well, uh, saying that it's 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 more complex than just a, a positive thing, and also that uh, this this more uh, yeah negative side is is often overlooked uh, mm -hmm. or maybe even uh, uh, suppressed in a way. Uh, so even if it's very obvious that something ne negative is going on, for example, people are like insulted or excluded or uh, certain groups. Uh, there's this it's, it's there's something going on with 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 racism or sexism even then uh, uh people will find a way to say no but this is not uh this is not really sexism because it's humor or this is not really racism because it's humor and so this is why uh yeah uh, why uh, this i think still is 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 a quite uh, uh, well, a perspective that that's that's not very common uh, and not very mainstream, but something is changing, and this I think has something to do with the well, the quote you were referring to from our introductory es uh, essay to the special issue, uh, which is also about the changing uh, political environment in uh, in the Western world, where you could say that in the nineties and the early two thousands. Well, this was the period often called uh, post-political in the sense that there was this very strong liberal consensus, uh, this idea of the end of history, in a way the end of politics, um, uh, thinking that it, it's, it's, it's merely a matter of, uh, well, technocratically solving things, but no big ideological battles because, well, capitalism won, liberalism won uh, the Cold War in a way, uh, so that's it. And in that context, I think it was relatively easy also to think of humor as something apolitical, something which uh, is, is, is merely about, uh, well, uh, having a laugh, um, uh, making something funny. Uh, and even when it is about a very political topic, uh, it would, well, it would still be uh, considered as, as something not necessarily very ideological or something like that and that i think really changed i think that uh, i'm not not exactly sure when this started but i would say it's uh, well by now maybe uh, at least for five or six years maybe some more this is going on but there is this change it can be maybe in a way connected to the start of the the, the trump presidency this 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 situation in which there's an awareness that that like this this idea of post politics can can no longer hold. Sure. Uh, and I think in the in, in the essay we are referring also to the notion of hyper politics as 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 the replacement of of post politics. 
uh, or being a situation in which, well, once again, maybe, or, or in a new way, everything is political. People are very much aware of, about their own political stance. And this also uh, affected uh, humor and the way we are thinking about humor. Also, in a way, making already some more room, I think, for this, this new, or this critical perspective. Because uh, I think today, uh, even though there are still many people who like to think that humor is merely something positive and something uh, something good, uh, there's also much more awareness about what, well, for example, the racist and sexist nature of much comedy. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, taking comedy seriously, seriously then, appreciating it even, even, I think, means having this dialectical sort of understanding of it, considering all of its effects. I mean, um, you know, the, the wonderful essay by C.N. Uh, Guy and, and Lauren Berlant, Comedy Has Issues, talks about how comedy can just as often be anxiogenic, like it can produce anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think, too, about like how Tiffany Haddish has had to defend her specific brand of comedy against claims that, as she says, like, you know, she's too ghetto or something like she's too she's too gritty and that she's like setting black women back with her particular persona. And she says, like, what you don't get is that in a previous era, if I were making this jokes, I might be killed. Like these jokes Mm -hmm. are a matter of life and death in some instances. Yeah. And just like letting people in becomes this crucial political question. So I think, yeah, you know, and then, yeah, to jump, sorry, you did you? Well, yeah. I, I, I was going to say that, that, that this is another thing that has changed, I think, is that, uh, well, you, you, could, you could consider that, I would consider that the, the, the positive sides from the perspective of a more uh, critical, the kind of critical perspective that I take, that by now there is more room for these more marginal uh, minority voices to actually be heard, to actually be critical, to actually uh, uh, have this debate where uh, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, it was not possible at all, or they tried to, but they were silenced immediately. So that's why I think that's a good thing. But that also means that those who were used to just, well, making any kind of, 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 of racist or sexist jokes, they were like these usually older white male uh, comedians. Uh, they were not used to, uh, uh, to to get this kind of feedback. Mm-hmm. And so, well, th- that, that's the interesting thing that they, they, they are, many of these comedians uh, start talking about censorship. And then uh, I think there was uh, at a conference where I was some years ago, there was someone who was saying that these 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 people were saying that they are confusing uh, uh, censorship with feedback, saying that um, mm-hmm. this is not about uh, forbidding people or canceling actually them, but this is about uh, getting a response, getting a critical response. You make the joke and uh, publicly there is, uh, uh, yeah, there is a response, a critical response saying, uh, this is a sexist joke, this is transphobic, things like that. That's what's happening. So this is just about, there. now there's a debate about jokes. But the very fact that there is a debate about jokes is for some people, uh, for, let's say, the establishment, uh, the older establishment of comedy, or many people in, in that, that's, uh, in, 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 who are part of that, um, that is a problem in itself. Because they would say, yeah. you cannot, yeah, you cannot debate 
uh, jokes at all. <laughs> you should just not. I, I I I would say they 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 are not just claiming their right to make a joke, but also to uh, uh, not get any negative feedback. They want to make a joke and only have positive feedback, or people just uh, shutting up, but not giving negative feedback or critical feedback. Yeah, it's funny. I think like there's a level of stardom, I guess, a I guess, celebrity, yeah. celebrity where it's just like you you reach the point where you know your career is has been built on a certain brand of comedy, mm-hmm. and so feedback registers almost like an existential crisis. Yeah, when really it ought to just induce greater self awareness. And like you're absolutely right that the o- older white male comic comics have just been really recalcitrant when it comes to accepting this feedback as something other than this existential threat. But yeah. like, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, James Acaster, mm-hmm. um, the British comedian and, and certainly, you know, somebody like John Mulaney, like these are white male comics who have a degree of self-awareness that has really ramped up yeah. in the Trump era. I would say like mm-hmm. the Trump bump mm-hmm. has seen them self-consciously shift from this like fun, positive form of humor. Mulaney in, um, I think the comeback kid special has this bit about Donald Trump's presidency, making him more conscious of politics. He, he has this idea that it's like a horse is loose in the hospital. So mm-hmm. you just have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like a caster similarly has moved into this more overtly, almost confrontational mo- mode in, you know, what is my current favorite comedy special cold lasagna, hate myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like the first move he makes in that special, I don't know if you've seen it, where he like is challenging so-called challenging comedians like Ricky Gervais, who will say like, if you don't like it, don't watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he specifically takes aim at Gervais and and notes how defensive British comedy fans are of this guy because of his celebrity and his status. And it got me thinking about, again, that article um, uh, by Sian uh, uh, Nagai and, and Lauren Berlin, uh, you know, where they... They point out that, you know, critiques of comedy rile people up and make people feel, quote, disrespected or devalued. Yeah. Um, there's this idea that we take our pleasures very seriously. We're very protective of our pleasures. And, you know, like Acaster in particular seems like the kind of younger comic that is sort of drawing a line in the sand intergenerationally mm. uh, and, and trying to create this standoff where the norms of comedy themselves are like in play on the table. Yeah. Um, and so like. He starts his his special by explaining that he's like swearing now specifically to alienate old people and mm-hmm. Christians, yeah. which he calls Crizos. Hmm. Um, do you think there is like, are you seeing that sort of sea change in comedy happening um, as the politics of comedy become more clear to especially maybe younger comedians? Do you actually feel like there is um, a kind of cultural revolution almost happening in comedy. Well, the uh, revolution is a big word, of course, but the example of, uh, what's his name, Acaster, um, 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 I, I, I didn't know him, um, but I did watch a little part of his uh, show because, uh, well, uh, you told me about it and I thought this was very, mm-hmm. uh, I, I was curious. Uh, and I actually think it's very... What can you say? It, it, it's uh, reflective of this recent development, you could say, of uh, especially uh, younger, usually younger comedians be, uh, becoming more aware of this, how, how comedy works, and also um, um, like pointing to this, this defensiveness. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think what has changed 
um, is well, you could say simply the fact that that this you cannot uh, avoid this this politicization uh, of of humor in a way. Um, so whether you like it or not, when you're doing comedy today, or at least, well, maybe not, it, it does not go for all comedy, but, but for a lot of comedy, you need to, uh, you need to take a stance in a way. And then you can go actually two ways. You could say you could, could go for the defensive stance saying, uh, 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 we, we need to protect free speech and we can make any joke and, and we need to protect ourselves from these woke people or you can go in the other direction like especially some younger comedians uh, and female comedians uh, are doing which is uh, uh, taking this situation uh, and this, this whole debate as a moment to reflect on how comedy actually works and also to well, to point to this, 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 this defensiveness and also the, the weird way in which, because, because, because I, I, I watched the, the little clip from, from the, from the cold lasagna special. And I, I actually found, found it quite funny when he was talking about these people, uh, who, who are saying that, that uh, trans people should, uh, not whine about all these, these jokes and you should, should be able to take it. But when you make a joke of Ricky Gervais, well, that's right. that's very that's really offensive. <laughs> like 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 making jokes of trans people, that's fine. But yeah, leave Ricky alone. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Just pointing to this yeah. in a way uh, hypocrisy. Uh, in that way, there is a change. I would say definitely. And I love that he, you know, he 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 says like, yeah. There's if there's one community that's due for a challenge, it's the trans community. Like just mm-hmm. the absurdity of attacking this group. Exactly. Um, and and we'll certainly get to Dave Chappelle. Um, we kind of need to talk about Chappelle. Mm. But you know, I, I guess I wanted to go back to your your co-authored essay for a second and just point out that it's it's you know this defensiveness is a kind of stalwart defense against like you know larger movements for mm. social justice. You point yeah, this yeah. out that like that this this evolution of comedy or revolution in comedy is connected, as you say, to the rise of social justice movements like me too and black lives matter, like pretty mm-hmm. directly. And, and, and me too is something that Chappelle directly attacks in the closer um, calling it stupid, like straight up calling it stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like, so you've got these, these comedy icons, um, you know, using their clout to decry so-called cancel culture, like John Cleese yeah. and so on, you know, he has a show called mm-hmm. cancel me. Um, but I guess like what I like about the essay is that it's just like underlining the fact that inescapably comedy is about power and it is traditionally male, traditionally sexist and tends to belittle minorities. Like these are not maybe explicitly said, but it's, it's clearly like the case that you're, you're working through these, um, these tendencies. And there is now, I think, an attempt to change the power balance, like to kind of recalibrate it, to right side it mm-hmm. in some sense. And, and I'm wondering, I guess, about like whether you whether you feel like we can mark particular, you know, tipping points. We've t- talked about Trump and we've talked about these these social justice movements. But I think even within comedy, like you can see kind of flashpoints where um, the the question of accountability, you know, is suddenly front and center. Like um, one thing I noticed was like early on when Jerry Seinfeld was producing this like wildly successful show comedians in cars getting coffee, which ended up just being like a lot of product placement and an excuse for him to drive like fancy cars around. Hmm. You know, he got sort of uh, criticized for only featuring white cisgendered male comics. 
Um, and, and he responded that he doesn't have to represent diversity on his show because he's quote, not taking a census. Yeah. Um, and even that moment went viral that, that moment of dismissive defensiveness. Um, but I guess like there are so many different moments that we could maybe isolate as a sort of tipping point or turning point. Um, and I guess I want to ask, like, do you have a sense of when things started to shift maybe in the Netherlands or, or more broadly in Europe? Um, and should like, is it helpful to analyze those specific moments where, you know, the central place of comedy in free speech debates became clear? Like, you know, I guess to, to cite a scholar that I know that, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly invested in her work and I know you are, um, uh, Gisa Linda Kuypers, like mm-hmm. what might these specific events reveal about what she calls humor regimes? Well, I certainly think it is interesting to to analyze those flashpoints or tipping points uh, to, to, to see what's happening and what's changing. Uh, it's also quite difficult, I would say, to to pinpoint one specific moment or event which which did well, which really made things change. It, it, it almost feels as if it's like more of a, a, a broader cultural and political change, mm. which, uh, uh, yeah, in, in my uh, experience, uh, uh, happened only uh, in the last five, six years or so, uh, uh, when, when this de- these debates became more and more heated and polarized. But I do think it's interesting to look what's, what's happening. And actually, um, besides the, the, well, the, the, the special issue that I've, I've been working on with my colleague, Dick Seip, uh, I'm also working on a book. Uh, which is about humor scandals or humor controversies mm. in the Netherlands, uh, but that that book starts in the in the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is is give a history of Dutch humor scandals from the nineteen fifties until the present, and use these scandals as a way to understand how um, also how our culture changed and the norms and values of our culture changed. Um, so because studying these humor scandals, uh, we do not only learn something about humor and differences in how what kind of humor was used, but also, of course, differences in, in society and culture and the kind of issues we were concerned with. And what I see is that, um, well, in the 1960s, there are a lot of humor scandals in the Netherlands, which are all related to, well, the changing of the times back then, uh, mainly uh, when there's a controversy, it's about uh the royal family or it's about religion or uh, things like that and that this is really the kind of i would almost say traditional uh way we think of humor when uh, there's a controversy because a lot of people are angry because they think that uh humor is used to to offend the queen or to to offend people of a certain religion Mm. There's like kind of a general consensus, uh, at least in the Netherlands, that uh, a lot is, is possible in, in, in humor and comedy, especially when it comes to uh, offending uh, the royal family or saying offensive things about uh, Christians, for example, things like that. That's very accepted at some point uh, from the 1970s and 80s onwards. Uh, so then there are less humor scandals. And then, but what, what you do see happening I think already a little bit uh, in the 1970s is uh, that that people are also starting to uh, be offended or or at least make a problem uh, of 
certain jokes being uh, racist. Uh, and in, in the beginning, this is only occasionally happening. Um, but that's, I would say, uh, already a start of a, a development which has intensified very strongly in recent years, uh, indeed with that advent of, of Black Lives Matter and, and, and the Me Too movement, when indeed you could say uh, the existing humor regime, as uh, Gieselinde Kuipers calls it, uh, is, uh, is challenged in a way, uh, because in this mm-hmm. uh, old regime, uh, which is the secularized liberal kind of regime where uh, basically anything goes in humor uh, and, and you should be able to take a joke. You should be able to, uh, uh, to, to laugh along even when you are the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that is often said still to like, for example, uh, when, when, when humor, humor is, is using stereotypes from uh, certain... Uh, minority groups in society, um, then it's often said, well, um, um, uh, the fact that we, we make fun of you means that you are included because, uh, 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 yeah, being the butt of the joke may, means we take you seriously. That's what, what, what is said sometimes. And of course, there's a lot right. to, to be said against that. that but, but it shows that um, there's a very strong idea of, 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 of the way you should think about humor, especially humor about uh, minority groups. Uh, but then uh, in recent years, this, 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 uh, no, this regime uh, is challenged. Um, and so in my view, the fact that there are so many humor scandals at the moment uh, is a, a sign of the that there's something changing. Uh, I would maybe even say something on a deeper level in society. There are changes about how we think about the world, how the world works, uh, what's important, uh, 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 what's our position in it. Uh, and this comes with this realization, at least in some parts of society, that uh, 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 that humor is very much bound of with power, that there are very strong power imbalances and that humor can contribute to that. And that's that that's the reason to be critical about humor. But of course, this also leads to this mm-hmm. counter reaction of people saying, no, uh, humor has absolutely nothing to do with power. Or even some people saying, uh, yes, humor has something to do with power, but, uh, uh, but um, actually the trans people or the woke people they have the true power, you know, in some weird way that the argument goes. Right. But still, it, it is a sign of, of, of changing times. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's no coincidence, I would say, that in the Netherlands, as well as in uh, the UK and the US, there are so many, yeah, you could call them all humor scandals or controversies uh, going on in recent years. Mm-hmm. That also makes it difficult to say that there's one that's actually the most important or the, the, the first one. Sure. And I mean, like we often focus on, you know, particular, uh, like particularly high profile ones. But I think you're right to point out that in the long tail of the Internet, so-called, like th- these controversies kind of proliferate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and in, I mean, comedy is just I want to get to this question of like the comedification almost of everyday mm-hmm. life. Um, but there's a way in which comedy kind of saturates all of the modes of communication now. Yeah. Um, and that itself is worth kind of reckoning with. I, I think, you know, when it comes to humor controversies, though, we focus on, 
instances of like people being taken to court. Mm-hmm. You know, like here in Canada, we had a, a pretty high profile court case decided by the Supreme Court on the limits of comedy to kind of, you know, weaponize various forms of discrimination against like specific disadvantaged groups. Um, this guy, Mike Ward, was exonerated ultimately for mocking uh, a guy named Jeremy Gabriel uh, during more than 200 stand-up shows attended by more than 138,000 mm. people. You know, this, this is a, a kid, Gabriel, who was born with uh, uh, Treacher-Collins syndrome, a rare genetic disorder that causes certain malformations of the head, ears, and palate. He's born deaf but has a hearing aid implanted uh, at age six that allows him to speak and sing. And he, you know, sings for the Pope and he becomes sort of a celebrity in, in Quebec. Um, Ward just straight up, you know, mocks uh, his physical appearance. And his defense is just that there were mm-hmm. jokes, of course, and that they were aimed at Gabriel as a celebrity and not at him as a, as a disabled mm-hmm. person or differently abled person. And, you know, like Ward then gets extolled by his fellow comedians for saving Mm -hmm. comedy, this like backlash to the backlash Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And it just reminded me of the point that um, uh, uh, Kuypers makes in the book, Good Humor, Bad Taste, that, quote, offensive jokes can go further than offensive statements can because jokes of this nature continually threaten to escape moral judgments. And that kind of like leads into my next question, which is like, you know, what happens when somebody who is in fact like a, a a person on the left who cares about inclusion and and questions of social justice and inequality then sort of begins to attack wokeness in in like more nuanced ways because like you you made that interesting point that people like ward and and others might suggest that like the liberal woke media that is you know intent on ganging up on these comedians and canceling them like they have the real power mm. And that seems to be a little bit at the heart of what Ada Rodriguez is saying in um, uh, her incredible HBO special, Fighting Words. You know, in that special, Rodriguez claims that it's challenging to do comedy today because comedians are held to a higher standard than people in in, like political office. Mm. It's interesting that somebody like Rodriguez with the subject position that she like occupies actually feels like wokeness, cancel culture is actually mostly just about liberal outrage and not social justice Mm -hmm. necessarily. And then it can be, you know, counterproductive in certain ways. Like she's, she's kind of echoing this idea that like we're all in our, filter bubbles to some extent and that we're just kind of preaching to the choir, which is itself just like um, seemingly a major trend in comedy studies to just, you know, focus on that problem of comedians preaching to the choir. Mm. Um, I think we need to understand the scale here to some extent, like the controversy over somebody like Chappelle is a little different because of the Mm. scale of his, his sort of influence. Like I feel like she's mostly thinking about, um, you know, workplaces mm. and like this, you know, public sphere, the kind of classical public sphere. Um, and yeah, like, you know, so there's this sense then that um, when it comes to comedy, it, to again, quote, uh, Berlant and uh, uh, Guy, that, you know, it saturates the most ordinary spaces. There is this notion of like the comedification of everyday life, yeah. which I referred to earlier. I like that. I like that, uh, that term, I think, comedification. I think, uh uh, Nicholas Holm, which you, we also know, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, is also a very uh, someone who's also working in this line of critical humor research. Yeah. Also, in his uh, he, uh, he published a book about uh, humorous politics uh, mm-hmm. some years ago, uh, where he was saying that in today's society, 
uh, humor is um, uh, is no longer it's not an option it's a demand so right. it's about this 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 is well kind of the same as this this idea uh, of of uh, comedification or uh, the, the the saturation of of, of uh, every aspect of life with uh, comedy uh and i think that that's really because of course there has always been humor um, uh, when you go back very far in time you will all, always find examples of people in some way using some form of humor uh, and i think every society or community in the world has some form of humor but it is typical for our day and age and i think this goes mostly for the western world uh that uh well that indeed uh, it is in a way um, you need to uh, have a sense of humor. You need to find uh, uh, lots of things funny. Um, um, it's it's very difficult today to publicly say uh, uh, that something is not funny or that you don't do not like a certain joke because, or, or even in a private uh, sphere, a lot of the times I would say because. Uh, then you are uh, you're humorless. You do not have a mm. sense of humor, and that's seen as a uh, as a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, because why can't you just laugh about the joke? Uh, and of course, this is also something that is being challenged by this more recent critical movement, uh, critical about mm -hmm. all kinds of humor. But still, it's also still a very strong sentiment that. Uh, uh, you need to have humor and you need to see the humor in everything. Um, and that's also, yeah, indeed the classic response uh, in the example you gave about the court case in Canada where the, the comedian who, well, in a way was was not being held accountable for the kind of uh, jokes he made, that this idea of it's just a joke, uh, don't take it too seriously, uh, it, it's still... Quite often hurt, but of course that's just an excuse to to well, to 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 have the, the freedom to make these kind of jokes and mm -hmm. yeah, that's what this is about, I think. Yeah, and I think I mean it has to be partly you know in the contemporary moment about the saturation of everyday life by things like social media. I mean, mm, you know, this sure. is something that you know we you know things like TikTok for God's sakes, like mm. you know mm. cancel culture itself, like as a concept, kind of originates in in mostly funny videos posted to platforms like TikTok, mm. um, where there's this demand for playfulness, for humor. Um, but, you know, I, I guess like that means to me, we need to sort of, you know, build out from theories like Kuiper's and talk about how humor, as she puts it, is not primarily a test of one's cultural competence, but a way of relating to others. Like it's about mm. like social survival. You know, yeah. as I say, she's like writing this before the emergence of so-called filter bubbles through social media algorithms. So, like, you know, I, I feel like we need to really think about the profound impact of social media, how certain things have changed, but other trends have maybe only deepened. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Cliff Nesteroff points out on the uh, WTF podcast, Mark Maron's podcast, that, um, you know, while minority groups have been pushing to be included, to have space in comedy for a very long time, it's really only now that we see real movement toward di diversity. And that has to partly come from the democratizing influence of things like YouTube, the, the, the ways in which they alter the comedy landscape. But I guess, like, do you see both sort of forces at work, a democratizing force, but also a sort of professionalizing force? Because, like, 
you know, like when somebody like Conan O'Brien, for example, becomes, you know, a, an award-winning podcaster, there's a way in which we're like moving away from that democratization of media that the internet was supposed to promise, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's like there's a different set of demands now when it comes to uh, the production of comedy in the digital public sphere. Yeah, well, I, I really think there are, are, are two sides to that. Uh, the, the, well, the, the rise of social media, the, the ever stronger uh, influence of the, the internet and, uh, in, in our daily lives that on the one hand, this created this space for uh, what you could call alternative voices. Uh, this is part, of course, of this democratizing uh, development in a way. And there's all, of course, that's how the internet started. The idea that everybody could have a say, could do what they want to do. Uh, but by now, of course, we all know the, the, that there's also this, this this other side of the algorithms of the the, 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 the big corporations, in a way, ruling ruling the internet. Uh, uh, um, and so the complicated thing here is that um, uh, in today's media landscape, with all these different media outlets and social media, uh, like things like Instagram, TikTok, uh, and but also Netflix, YouTube, uh, they all they all offer space for uh, as many different for for many different voices, and also for of course also for the kind of alternative. Uh, comedy and humor which is more critical or more self-reflexive which we didn't hear at all uh, well 10 20 30 years ago but the other side what you could call the well the bad side or or the the complicated side is is about these 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 algorithms really focusing on anything that uh, well that attracts our attention um, the creation of filter bubbles, also making people becoming much more, more and more um, uh, obsessed with with their own ideas or, or opinions that they found online, uh, and it can also lead to 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 very heavy polarization. Mm-hmm. So, where on the one end, of course, it is a good thing that today we can have a, a more public, a public, publicly have a more serious discussion about the. The, the negative sides of comedy and and, and, and and talk about the sexist or racist implications of many jokes. On the other hand, um, the kind of response you get from uh, uh, John Cleese, Ricky Gervais, Dave Chappelle and all their fans is, um, is part of the same development. The very strong uh, feelings about don't touch this. This is, this is, uh, this is our right, our, our God-given right, uh, 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 even uh, as it is sometimes uh, more jokingly put, uh, uh, to, to, to make jokes about anything. Um, and of course, this has to do, I think, with this, uh, this internet culture, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny how like just the production, the continuous production of content makes all kinds of things sayable that might have been unsayable or, or, you know, like just the kind of, you know, production of content in the age of aggregators and algorithms. It's like that becomes an end in itself. And there isn't necessarily always room for nuance. If the, if the the primary goal is to just produce as much stuff as possible. Mm. And like, you know, the, the one thing I I think I mentioned to you over email is this strange story about Jon Stewart. Um, one of these major, like heavyweight, you know, figures in comedy, right? The Daily Show being, mm-hmm. you know, one of these 
kind of turning points in terms of the creation of a more critical register for comedy. You know, he went on a rant uh, as part of his own podcast that comes out of the problem with Jon Stewart about anti-Semitic representations in Harry Potter. So like pointing out just some of the negative aspects of entertainment. And, you know, I noticed like I saw the video, the comments weren't his comments weren't didn't make a huge impact at first. Mm -hmm. And then it's true, like a couple news outlets, I think specifically Newsweek picked up on the potential for controversy and started to like push it a little bit. And it became a trending topic on Twitter. And and what was weird to me is that Stewart kind of like disowned his own comments as though he was just producing content for the sake of content and said, like, you know, I wasn't really accusing J.K. Rowling of of anti-Semitism, you know, and then he actually like attacks the Internet media companies who he says their model is arson. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think like that was a pretty interesting intervention in some ways. Right. Like to to lay blame at the feet of the of the companies that are really trying to absorb all of our critiques into spectacularized, polarized politics, basically. Yeah. But I think like maybe I don't I don't know if you followed that story, if you had thoughts on that, but I feel like in this context, we need to eventually get to Joe Rogan, right? Like, mm, yeah. you know, and how controversy just kind of feeds its, itself and, and balloons into this thing. So and I think that's the big paradox about this whole uh, this whole debate is that uh, on the one hand, it's, import it's an important debate to, to, to have. And it's also, I think, a good thing that uh, there is a debate because 20 or 30 years ago, there was no debate at all because it was just... Uh, like a consensus that that, that these minority groups uh, should just be able to take a joke uh, and, and, and mm -hmm. everything was fine. But the paradox here is that what you're describing here is also about uh, by having this debate, we are playing in the hands of these big uh, uh, corporations um, mm -hmm. who basically make money from our debates. And this is the kind of feeding back into their... Um, so this is, in a way, we, we cannot escape this capitalist logic that's behind that, which is very mm. sad in, in a way. Um, and that's also, I think, why we in our, at least in our essay, but of course that's in an academic context, so that's a bit more easy, but um, we are explicitly saying that even though our uh, issue in our, our essay uh, touches upon this debate, the aim of our uh, 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 what we are doing in that issue and in, in, in that essay is not to to uh, to settle that debate. To say here we are from academia and now we are going to talk, uh, we are going to solve this debate because um, that's first of all that's not going to happen. But secondly, that's not what we want to do. We want to analyze it and we want to understand how things work with humor. Um, but it is. It is complicated in a way that, uh, on the one hand, I find it important to have this debate, but on the other hand, uh, you are so easily catched in this, uh, in this, well, uh, very binary uh, uh, model of uh, we have two groups which are uh, uh, basically yeah we are against each other. We have the the woke people and we have the the, the people who. Uh, fight for free speech or something like that, and they just clash with each other because exactly this 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 clashing is just part of the logic of these of, of these corporations wanting to make money. Uh, actually, 
like Dick, Dick Seib, uh, the, the one with whom I've uh, written the, the essay and also edited uh, this volume and with whom I work together a lot, he actually experienced this himself because uh, last summer he wrote an opinion piece in a Dutch newspaper about this, this, this basically this issue of the fact that comedy is also related to power relations, things like that. Um, but what happened then was that he was immediately caught up in this very polarized uh, uh, debate where it was mainly about do you agree or do you not agree? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and mainly people just accusing him of wanting to kill comedy, like like right. John Lee said it. Like he's just saying comedy is bad. Something yeah. like yeah, which he wasn't yeah. saying at all in 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 the sure. uh, in, in in the opinion piece. But that also makes it a bit difficult to to partake in these public debates because that's what happens. I mean. Um, in, 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 in this podcast, we, we can have our, our this talk about this topic, but when you go to, well, to, 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 to more public media uh, outlet, like, like a big newspaper or talk show or thing like that, uh, that's, that's, that's barely possible because there's this, this frame is so strong. And indeed, in the whole context of social media, uh, the algorithms are so much uh, directed towards creating this 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 fuss about uh, something someone is angry at someone and now the other person is angry at the other person uh, and you don't want to get caught up in that no but still you want to make your point about the problems of some uh, types of mainstream comedy which are very racist or sexist right without getting embroiled in like a beef a personal like exactly. attack exactly and yeah I mean I've I've experienced that. Uh, I've experienced that on a very small scale. Um, and it's interesting how we can experience backlash at these different like scales because mm-hmm. the frame is, as you put it, so strong and so kind of all encompassing. Like, um, you know, I, I was just scrolling through Facebook um, a little while ago and I saw a New, York, a New York Times story on Joe Rogan. And I was just so sick of seeing news mm-hmm. about Joe Rogan that I wrote just as a, it just fired off this paragraph about how like all of our critique just gets absorbed into this uh, machine basically, you know, Mm. Um, which is, is certainly, it can be really dispiriting to have uh, even your opposition to something uh, fuel the success of the thing that you are opposing. And that, that seemed to be what was happening with Rogan. Um, And so like, I, I get into this argument with, just like complete strangers on mm-hmm. Facebook. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who support Rogan that kind of confirm that hypothesis that people are very protective about their pleasure. Mm. Um, and, and so like I had to um, come to terms with the fact that there is this possibility of, of a kind of go nowhere, you know, uh, po- you know, polarized discussion where in the end, the social media ecosystem and Spotify, like these are the things that will ultimately benefit. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think isolating Joe Rogan himself as sort of like a comedian, but also a representative of a certain kind of like hyper masculinity mm. and like bullheadedness and brazenness. Like, you know, it's, it does feel to me increasingly like our criticism of these individual comedians and, and here, like we're, we're getting to the point, you know, I think um, need needs to include as, as John Stewart was trying to do a criticism of the algorithms, the aggregators and these internet you know, companies that, that benefit from them. But 
I agree. I agree. Uh, in the end, it's about the system, not so much about the individuals. And of course, sometimes it is good to talk about a certain individual, uh, especially when, well, for example, in the Dave Chappelle case, or mm-hmm. when it's very obvious that 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 one person is also very influential, has a very large fan base, uh, has right. and that the consequences are very, very big. But basically, the whole point of the kind of analysis that 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 uh, also we in our special issue are are making is that this is about uh, systems, about structures. This is about indeed how the the current social media ecosystem works. This is about how uh, patriarchal society structures work, um, mm. and so this is where we want to talk about. Um, but uh, what happens uh, as a consequence, actually, of I think of these algorithms, which are really much focused on incidents, is that we mm-hmm. focus on these persons. We focus on uh, everybody is angry at um, uh, Dave Chappelle, or some people are angry at Dave Chappelle. So this is interesting. And then the people who are angry at Dave Chappelle are attacked by other people who are angry at the people who are angry at Dave Chappelle. Um, but this is not where we want to talk about. What we're going to talk about is why is the humor of Dave Chappelle problematic? What what what, what is he actually doing? That's mm-hmm. the that's the question I would like to talk about. But it's very difficult to 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 do that. Yeah, and I finally I finally watched the closer. I had been uh, re, you know reluctant to even take mm. it in because I knew it was going to just you know enrage me <laughs> over and over again, mm. and and it did. Um, but the thing I kept trying to remind myself of rather than just like vilifying this guy whose comedy I've occasionally liked in the past, Mm -hmm. right? He's not, he's not an inept comedian, but I tried to remind myself of the role of Netflix, um, because it's like Netflix is is such a shadowy company, right? Like it doesn't give away its data. doesn't really share how it works necessarily. It's very protective of these like company secrets. Mm. Um, but I wanted to like investigate my own, attachment in the moment of uh, to, to being angry at Chappelle and the attachment clearly that people have to the pleasure that his comedy brings. And so I was reading uh, Stuart Jeffrey's book, Everything, All the Time, Everywhere, How We Became Postmodern. And Jeffries has this great section on Netflix where he quotes Ted Sarandos, um, you know, the CEO of Netflix, as saying, people have always been frustrated when they can't get to see what they want. Today, you can't stop spreading the joy for long. That's where I come in. And he's quoted as saying that he uses data to, quote, determine the potential audience to a level of accuracy very very few people can do. So he's able to see the social media landscape and his viewership in ways that he's he's admitting, you know, is is not a capacity that many people have. And so, you know, Jeffries elaborates, there's over... Uh, 800 Netflix engineers who work behind the scenes to try and predict what you might want to watch next. And that while, quote, we seem to be getting what we want all the time, or we suppose that the system is less monopolistic and that we've liberated ourselves from the gatekeepers, we're actually being, he says, ruled by another more sophisticated group of gatekeepers that are giving us this illusion of choice. Mm. And it seems to me like this is crucial for understanding the nature of the Chappelle controversy. I mean, like there have been people who at the beginning suggested that, you know, like employees walking out on Netflix and the backlash against the closer could actually hurt the company, but it, it definitely seems to not have happened, right? Like the no. opposite perhaps is true. 
Uh, the special was a huge hit um, and and probably benefited from the backlash. And even, you know, the AV Club uh, uh, reports that Netflix is, quote, quintupling down on Chappelle by giving him a series of, I guess, uh, comedy specials that he's hosting but not performing in necessarily. You know, it's it's this, I think, kind of open attempt to exploit the scandal of this transphobic special. And I guess, like, what do you, you know, just broadly, what do you think this 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 special, the closer, as such a flashpoint, reveals about contemporary comedy, maybe the nature of algorithms, but like, you know, uh, um, have you seen the special? What was your impression? You know, do you see it as almost like a pivotal moment in the history of comedy, at least in the U.S.? Yeah. And what do you think? What do you think the legacy of the closer is going to be? Well, I can imagine the legacy will be uh, substantial in a way because it has had such a big impact, uh, given the fact that this is one of the few scandals uh, from the U.S. context that I actually know because uh, there was written a lot about it in Dutch newspapers. So there were Dutch uh, journalists uh, writing articles about this, uh, this, uh, this event, this, 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 this whole situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was even, uh, well, uh, on TV and talk shows, uh, there was attention for it. Um, So in that way, uh, a lot of people around the world, around the Western world, I guess, have, have, uh, have, have known about it. And also I think what's, what makes the, the, the Chappelle case, so interesting, um, well, apart from what you already said, that it's, it basically shows uh, this whole, well, the power of these, these large companies, which are indeed very uh, shadowy. I mean, that this goes for Netflix, but of course, the same goes for these other, like also on TikTok or Instagram. These mm-hmm. algorithms are all very shady. And the main thing we know is that uh, the goal of these L- algorithms is to show us as individual users exactly what we want to see at a certain point or what what we they they in a way predict what we uh what we are craving for what we need to see what we like to see um but apart from that the Chappelle case is interesting i think because he is himself um uh, he's a black comedian of course and he's very uh, generally seen as someone who, who used to be in that way, you could say, uh, on the good side, in the sense that he was the kind of comedian who was pointed to all kinds of problems in American society related to racism. So in a way, he was a minority person or a person talking for marginal voices himself at some points. And now mm-hmm. he seems to have changed in this person who is, well, acting against uh, another minority, namely trans people. I think people get more angry uh, 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 at, at the people who are questioning his, his Chappelle's comedy because they, uh, they say, but he is, well, he's himself uh, uh, speaking for a marginalized voice or has done so for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the problem here is that, um, well, I would say this has all to do with uh, what in academia is called intersectionality. Uh, so the fact that you have these different axes of, of, of power, basically, related to class, class, uh, gender, race, uh, and some other things. Uh, 
um, and that you can, well, in, in, in his case, he is uh, representing a black voice, but he's also representing a male voice uh, and also a, a, a cisgender, heterosexual kind of male voice. Um, and so this is why he can, on the one hand, be can make critical, smart jokes about uh, uh, white people and still also make very problematic jokes about trans people. And that is uh, exactly what he's doing. Um, and so in, in, in a way, why he is probably, why there will probably, well, you could say uh, be a legacy of this case is because it's so illustrative of well, of how comedy works, of how, also about uh, the, 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 the two sides of it, how, because that's basically where it comes down to, that we have this idea that com comedians and humor are always challenging the powers that be, or are challenging power in, a, in some way. So the comedian is always the, the marginal voice uh, and, and the, the, the thing uh, that, that he, he jokes about is the is the dominant or powerful thing that's what we like to think mm -hmm. but in reality um we know that power uh is a very well uh, it, it it is a very complex thing there's no one center of power uh there are all kinds of ways in which power is distributed through culture throughout culture throughout society and i would say the specific uh well uh, ability of comedy is that it can do both um well almost at the same time or or it can do for for one uh in in one respect it can be challenging some powers that be or some powerful uh, uh some form of power and in the Chappelle case you could say he is doing that regarding racism because he's a black comedian and he's uh going against uh all kinds of white power structures but at the same time there are also these power structures regarding gender and sexuality and there of course he is on the powerful side because he is uh, a heterosexual male mm -hmm. actually seeing that that comedy uh, 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 can um, well that in one comedy show both can happen at the same time uh, mm -hmm. that's important i would say and it i think it makes his special like more persuasive to the people who are primed to laugh and to agree with them especially mm. which is sort of part of the danger of it i mean mm. the blind spot you're right to point out is his his lack of any real understanding of intersectionality how these mm. di different intersecting forms of oppression matter you know um and and i mean like uh, uh and i think also like um i want to quote a couple of people um feminist theorists who really i think hit the nail on the head when it comes to these blind spots in Chappelle and why they matter. Uh, Melanie Pruls uh, writes about how Chappelle often relies on this idea of a certain hierarchy of suffering that insulates him from criticism. Um, she specifically says that, you know, it allows him to publicly condone rape, diminishing the horror of sexual violence um, and, and, you know, basically dismissing anyone who can't find rape funny. Right. Like, and there's a kind of nihilism there that gets reproduced, I think. Mm. Um, but then also um, in her article for Vanity Fair, Jamila, Jamila Lemieux talks about Chappelle, as you kind of, you know, articulated as a figure that doesn't just, you know, talk about racism, but who clearly doesn't care about dehumanizing whole groups of people, right? Like yeah. he has admitted, I think in the, um, 
what's the one the the bird revelation is that what it's called he talks about how like sometimes the mean thing to say is the funny thing like he just kind of leans into that mm. and yet you know she points out that people quote people go to Chappelle for profound racial insights and sometimes he delivers and then other times he's weighed down by how little he seems to think of black people who aren't what he would consider men. Yeah. Right. And she, in fact, cites Kimberly Crenshaw and, and invokes intersectional intersectionality to kind of, um, you know, explain why this this has ramifications. Um, and so, like, there's no getting around Chappelle's positioning, um, you know, throughout the closer. He's pausing for these long app- applause breaks that I think are meant as a rhetorical device to kind of prop him up as a representative of the entire black community. And yeah. it's like a truth teller. He's, he's yeah. even trying to kind of co-opt feminism and, and telling these stories about sojourner truth and ain't I a woman? Like, so like he's, it, what's so valuable though about Lemieux's piece and, and Proulx's piece is that, you know, they're cutting through all of those rhetorical moves like you are and saying like, both of these things are kind of happening at once. And if we can't tease them apart, then we actually don't grasp the impact mm. that it can have. And so I guess like, you know, as academics, it's so difficult, as you say, to like enter into a, a public debate because they are so divisive, so binaristic. But like, how do we, as it were, hold Chappelle accountable in those specific terms? Mm. Like, I think people like Amara Jones are so good, too. And just pointing out that like what Chappelle is actually doing is denying that trans people exist. Yeah. Um, you know, so like, I guess the question becomes like, how do you make a concept like intersectionality bridgeable or translatable in the context of comedy studies. It seems particularly tricky. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I, I, I'm afraid I don't have the, 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 the solution for that apart from uh, keep on talking about it ourselves and by talking so much about it also maybe find ways to, to explain it even better or in even more simpler terms. But still, sure. this is also, of course, about a certain uh uh way you look at the world so i think we uh, as academics or at least uh, certainly not all academics but in, in, in parts of academia especially in the cultural studies parts uh, we uh, agree about some basic principles like the fact that power is uh, how power works the fact that it works in this way of being well distributed through all, all kinds of cultural forms so basically the idea already that culture has a certain power is not shared by everyone. Right. Uh, Some people feel it's just innocent, yeah. Exactly. If you say it's just a joke, uh, that also means um, uh, a joke can't hurt. And for example, also the thing about being mean uh, to be funny also presupposes in a way that uh, you can do both at the same time. Mm. Uh, whereas, uh, of course, it's perfectly possible to be very mean through jokes and humor because there's also an aggressive side to humor mm-hmm. and there's also a way in which humor has real impacts in the world i would say we mm-hmm. would say but a lot of people are not convinced of that and you were also referring to this uh, idea of the comedian in this case Chappelle, as a truth teller i think that's mm-hmm. also a very interesting idea because uh, there is a very uh, close relationship, I think, to between uh, humor and truth in the sense that if we find something funny, we laugh about the joke, in a way we also, uh, I think, um, 
tend to think that it's true. Uh, and of course, uh, this contradicts with the idea that everything what we say in jest is, is, is not uh, well, it's not actually what we mean or, or, or is, 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 is mean something different than what you say. But still, I think if someone is uh, communicating a certain message, uh, a very or an opinion about the world, like Chappelle does, uh, through jokes, through humor, um, and if you like the jokes, if you like the humor, uh, then uh, indeed this form is very persuasive. Then because you like the jokes, you tend to think he's right. I think that's how it works. Uh, that if you're, yeah. uh, you're you're a fan of Chappelle, you you watch his show, uh, he, he makes some jokes that you really like, and and and, and uses these jokes to make uh, actually a serious serious point. Then you tend to think, oh, he's so right. That is so true what he's saying. And 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 well, this is the, you could say the power of humor, and it's is a fascinating thing, but it's also a very tricky and dangerous thing because it means that if you uh, possess the power to 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 joke and to 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 make people laugh, uh, you also possess the power to, in a way, uh, 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 well, uh, make them uh, take a certain message and, and and share a certain opinion that they uh, would not have shared so easily if it was uh, brought to them without the humor, without the jokes. What you were talking about made me think about the um, you know discussion between. Um, uh, Mark Marin and Cliff Nesteroff on the the What the Fuck podcast that I mentioned. Um, you know, Marin says that he like, and and a lot of comedians who used to really invest in offensive humor have kind of gone in this direction of of self criticism, which is I I find it to be encouraging. Like people like Sarah mm. Silverman and and others have been have kind of like undergone that that thing of like taking in feedback and actually adopting it. Um, and trying to be self-aware in their craft. You know, Marin says that he wants to be brutally honest about what, where he calls uh, the juice of offensive comedy comes from um, and, and kind of acknowledge the emotional damage that those jokes have caused, which is, you know, pretty notable for somebody like Marin who admits like he's always had this attachment to saying the unpopular thing and then getting laughs to confirm like the truth of it. Um, and Marin just recently had Drew Michael on his podcast to discuss uh, a special that I, I mostly enjoyed called Red, Blue, Green. Um, you know, it's a, it's definitely a different kind of special, has all these really self-reflective moments where, and, and certainly his first special for HBO was like this as well. Uh, but the difference here is like Drew Michael is trying to move away from a, a period in his period in his career where like Marin, he wanted to be like the truth teller, the, the guy who was going to tell boundary pushing jokes, um, and, and kind of break through people's defenses through this like technique of, of soliciting laughter. And he's just kind of tried to undergone, undergo a little bit of a transformation, I guess. And it, you know, like, I guess it, I haven't read, uh, Nick Holmes essay for the volume of, uh, European journal of cultural studies, um, yet, but in your summary of it, in the introduction, you talk about how there has been this conscious movement away from like jokes and laughter as just like the metrics for what counts mm -hmm. as a comedy performance. Like there's a, a more elastic sense of um, what's what is possible in comedy. And that yeah. too, I think is encouraging. And it yeah. seems to run alongside like the, the abandonment of the so-called juice of offensive comedy to some extent. Yeah. Um, I don't know. First of all, if you wanted to like, 
talk about that essay at all and what it's like what it's theorizing in terms of that transformation of form or like particular examples that you can think of that that do kind of blow apart the conventions of comedy a little bit well i think the essay of nicholas uh, is also much about uh, it's also a reflection on, on 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 humor studies and how humor studies used to be very much focused on the the form of the joke uh, right. as, as, the, as the ultimate form of humor in a way. And, and he's actually saying, well, uh, that, that this has never been true, but especially in, in our uh, time, in our day and age, this is not true because the kind of humor uh, we are confronted with is, uh, is not necessarily using the joke structure. Uh, it's more complex than that. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I think what you're relating to here is interesting that uh, in a way these, well, you could say the more classic transgressive kind of humor we know from Chappelle and, and others uh, is this kind of humor where uh, offensive jokes are, are in a way essential to the comedy. So this the idea is that if you make these jokes about certain groups, that's very... Uh, yeah, very brave thing to do, and you are very, uh, you're challenging, um, and 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 well, of course, there's still a big uh, audience for that kind of humor and that kind of jokes. But I think the kind of people who are critical about this kind of well, more uh, traditional comedy, uh, 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 of course, by their uh, uh, the, the people who, who are attacking them and, 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 and who are defending this 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 right of free speech, etc., um, they they would say that that those people, uh, that those critical people, they don't do not have a sense of humor, suggesting that they would never laugh at all. Mm. Uh, but of course they do, and I think there is this other uh, branch of of, of comedy, and uh, you could say a more new type of comedy. Uh, which is more self-reflexive uh, and which is indeed less focused on making offensive jokes and more about using humor to, well, in a way to 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 hold up a mirror to these other kind of comedians like Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle and say, wait a minute, you this this whole idea of challenging, what is so challenging about your comedy? I mean, that's and then it's mm. more about, of course, they also work with some forms of irony. Uh, to to well, but I agree that, that that kind of comedy works a little different from the more traditional uh, joke, uh, coarse joke styled comedy. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah, and I love that innovation. Like I think constantly about Natalie Palomides' special Nate because it's like this work of just like Gonzo clowning and just like it's a performance piece, but it's also using irony and. And shock, like that's the other thing. Like there, there's a way in which mm. woke comedy isn't safe either. Like this assumption that it's safe, that it toes the line, that it's just like no, no, no. narrowly politically correct is just not true. I mean, like no. there's shock in those specials. There's shock in Ida Rodriguez's special. Um, you know, yeah. it's there. It's Aziz Ansari. Like there, there are even. I mean, Hannah Gatsby, who you might see as a little bit of like the icon of a certain kind of woke comedy, right? A person mm-hmm. who rejected comedy as such yeah. in her breakout special Nanette is still, I think, saying occasionally like shocking things. Like she is bringing yeah. up difficult subjects, but Definitely. she's doing it from a, a feminist positioning 
that you know you know is is about trying to um uh disarm uh, uh misogynists basically you know like yeah and it's uh to me that's brave <laughs> like that counts as absolutely brave. and it and it proves it proves that woke comedy does exist and is actually very thriving in a way mm. right now uh, only like people who are defending this old style of comedy uh they don't want to see there it doesn't fit in their world view because in their world view either you you like offensive jokes or you're humorless so yeah. uh, it's like not possible to have this whole kind of comedy whereas indeed i agree that it it is if you want to see truly uh, shocking or challenging comedy, I would watch the kind of woke comedy mm. uh, where, where often very uh, yeah uh, interesting things are happening. And also because that's actually challenging a certain uh, consensus, a certain status quo, it's asking the question, why are we laughing at these kind of jokes? Why are we always laughing about these women doing typical women things? Or why are we always laughing about gay people? Hmm. What's so funny about it, actually? What's so challenging about that? This is the kind of questions posed by these, well, you could call them woke comedians. These are the more, at least I would say, the more uh, new and interesting questions to ask. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, like the, it's, it's growing. And there's a growing yeah. kind of... Um, uh, courage, I think river butchers, uh, special, a different kind of dude is, is like a breakout special that is about, um, you know, protecting trans kids at a time where, especially in the Southern U S literally they are under threat. I mean, like their, mm. their, their lives, their safety is under threat. I mean, mm. to me, that is crucial. And asking the question, why are we laughing? Is at the heart of that, you know? And, and, and yeah. so I, I see that as really encouraging. You've been talking. We've talked a little bit about like our own academic positioning a little bit, and I guess mm-hmm. like in terms of trying to be self-aware ourselves about people who appreciate comedy, like we we don't want to do, and and I think we we haven't really been doing this, but we definitely don't want to do the thing of conflating um, taste, like our taste for what we're calling woke comedy, with a certain kind of ontology, which has been a tendency sure. in co- in like positive uh, a positive humor. Uh, studies, as it were, or like this tendency mm. in comedy studies to focus on it. Uh, like si- Simon Critchley is the maybe the classic case of this sort of conflation of taste and ontology. But you yeah. know, like I had this moment that I wanted to relate where I was in a coffee shop before uh, Halifax, where I live, had to go back into lockdown, and I overheard this young guy talking about loving offensive comedy, um, like saying like this is his brand of comedy is is like straight up offensive stuff and there were two young women with him who were like clearly embarrassed by his open admission but they still didn't like chastise him or or like criticize him in any real way and you know like to go back to Kuiper's book good humor bad taste there's this deep analysis in that book of how challenging or boundary pushing humor is quote valued more positively by people with the intellectual and youthful humor styles than by older people or people who like popular humor. And she's really trying to do this sociology of taste analysis of like mm-hmm. why people uh, prefer certain kinds of comedy. Um, and so, you know, her, her fundamental point is that like humor reflects a worldview. Identification yeah. is crucially important. And like my preference, like you, I mean, I have this preference for comedy comics like Hari Kondabolu, who will openly admit that they are killjoys who do comedy. Um, 
And so mm. like that is a particular preference that I guess I need to sort of avow um, because, and because I, I realize like the catharsis I get from watching comedy is like, I am also hearing someone interpret the messiness of social reality. Mm. And so like it dawned on me that I do look at my personal preferences in comedy as something more serious, like more akin to almost ontology, a part of my very being. And I guess my question is like, do you think we need to situate ourselves you know, as, as people who are dedicated to being critical of comedy, especially comedy that we think is like too cheap or too lowbrow. Mm. I mean, should we talk about our age, which Kuiper sees as a key variable in these aspects of our social positioning, the fact that mm. we're like relatively well-educated, et cetera, yeah. like that seems to be, it has to like be part of the conversation, you know? Sure. I totally agree with you uh, on that. And uh, I do think that, well, I would say you can never, well, you cannot you will always be influenced by your own taste uh, of course and that's not a problem uh, as such but uh, it's important to be aware of that um, and indeed as you pointed out in uh, what's called the positive humor movement um, there is this tendency to really focus on well the kind of humor that the the, the author the scholar himself him or herself likes uh, that that's the kind of good humor uh, or the humor that's actually interesting. Uh, I think what is, well, I would say good about the more critical humor studies perspective is that we look a lot at comedy that we do not like, actually, in a way that True, yeah. it's very interesting to analyze Chappelle, even if you do not like his comedy. Um, so that's where you're actually, um, well, uh, uh, not limiting yourself to what you like, but still in that situation, there is this, um, well, you do have your own preferences and um, you are in the, we are in a situation in a certain uh, environment, a certain class, a certain part of society where certain types of humor are valued more than others. Uh, and as a humor scholar, I would say your your task is, or it, it, it's good if you try to look at humor as uh, as broadly as possible, and to be um, aware that that's that's maybe the 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 well the kind of message to take away. Uh, I, I would give is that um, you uh, you should be aware that something. You, that there is, it is possible that you do not find something funny, but that it's still humor, uh, mm. because that's where it goes wrong a lot of the time. That if it's not funny anymore to you, uh, it's easy to say, but but that's not humor or it's not true humor. True humor is critical. So then, actually, that's what what Critchley does. He's saying that most jokes are uh, are offensive, or most jokes are are like stereotypical. But I like critical comedy, and that, and that so that's still the essence, uh, so to right. say. And that's when you start thinking that the, the only the things that I can laugh about are the truly the things that are that count as true humor. Whereas uh, the, the the honest and, and complete story is that uh, humor has all kinds of different faces, and some faces you like, other faces you do not like. I mean, that, that could serve as a, a great place for us to 
conclude in a way. I mean, I could ask you a million more questions, but uh, you know, it's it's been really it's been wonderful talking to you. It's you know, I'm looking forward to reading, get it, you know, getting my hands on the whole issue that you've put together. Yeah. Actually, it should be out, it should be out in a couple of weeks uh, at least online. So it's it's in the very last stage now of, uh, of of the publishing. So that's good news. Oh, that's awesome! Thanks so much for making the time. You're welcome.